0: A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching the disciples saying to them, the son of man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. Then they came to Capernaum And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into, the, into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's
2: pray together. Our Father, sometimes we uh, come upon texts, even in the Gospels and the story of Jesus, that are hard and challenging and perhaps even a little off-putting. So we ask that this morning you would give us ears to hear and you'd help us to have your spirit about us as we listen and think about these words together. So be with us, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so some hard words, metaphors, analogies, illustrations, right? Death by millstone, amputations, hell, worms that never die. Um, What do we want to do with this? Uh, Let me just back way up for a moment as we sort of wade into this uh, challenging text, I think, um, and go back into the fall. At the very outset of this particular series, as we started to study Mark, I said or mentioned that there are two things, two questions that really each week we ought to sit with right and they're just very simply these that we must remember right that mark is writing about the story of jesus because he's raised from the dead and the spirit has been given so he assumes immediately that whenever we read the story of christ that jesus is present to his people interacting with us so the first question is just this am i willing to let this jesus engage me right will i let him interfere and engage my life my questions uh, my story if you will and the second is related to that it is will I open up to the kind of changes that Jesus talks about and wants for our lives right and for our world his kingdom the kingdom that he's bringing the real one not the ones we sometimes imagine but the real kingdom of God right well, am I going to be open to that so those are the that's the sort of parameters for thinking about that and I think it helps us when we uh, come into these, challenging gospel stories that in some sense begin to disturb not just the disciples' view of who Jesus was, but our own, right? <laughs> we have our own conceptions that get, begin to get stirred up and shaken up just a bit, and this text does that, and it principally, um, as we sort of wade through the whole second half of Mark, the question that's going to surface over and over and over again has to do with Jesus' cross, right? His intention to come and suffer and die. And then as he says here, the promise that he will rise again, which even then didn't make a lot of sense to the people that were hearing it, right? So the disciples are confused. We're picking up the story in a moment of continued confusion, of Jesus's continued discussion about his coming death on the cross and his resurrection. The confusion just seems to get amplified. And so here we are with the disciples. And in verse 32, Mark says, they did not understand what he was saying. In other words, Jesus was saying these words and they did not understand what he was talking about. And you probably felt similarly, right, as we read part of the gospel story this morning, right? We don't understand what he's talking about. But they were afraid to ask him. That's an interesting and telling thing, isn't it? These are men and in the larger community, women who have followed Jesus rather closely, they have been privy to all the private conversations, all the private teaching, but there's still this fear, this sense that I ought to know better, right? Have you ever felt that? You know, I'm a firstborn child, I lived with a lot of ought to know better uh, kind of moments in my life, and maybe you've lived with those moments. The disciples seem to be in a moment like that, but it's important, I think, to remember that unlike us who rehearse the story of Jesus' life every single week, when we say the Apostles' Creed, the disciples are in the middle of his life, right? They don't know what the ending means. They, they just hear Jesus talking about these things that feel nonsensible to them. They don't understand what he's saying they're confused, and their understand their confusion's understanding. I think it's important, and our own confusion is understanding, understandable in many ways. And so, let's think about this text and how it might help us sort of wade through things that are confusing to us. So, two things. Their competition for status and then the seriousness with which we must take our discipleship. So competition for status and serious discipleship. So first, competition for status. So Mark says that as Jesus is talking about these things and teaching, right, they're on the road walking into their new destination, that the disciples among themselves in that moment begin to argue about who is greatest. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. When I read that, I think that sounds weird. Right? Because Jesus is talking about the, the ending of his life, in essence, right? and they're confused about it. They only know that crosses mean right, the curse of God, on the one hand, if you're thinking in a religious stance, and it means the, the death of a political rebel, on the other hand, if you're thinking about it in the political stance. Right, That's what the cross means. So why, why does their status among one another matter? What do they think they're going to continue? I mean, this is a weird kind of thing to be arguing about, but they do. And Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? What were you arguing about when you were on the way? And they're silent because on the way they've been arguing about who was the greatest, right? Now, so it sounds childish, right, when you begin to sort of pull the curtain back on that, right? And I was working on this this week, and I'm thinking, yeah, they just sound this sounds childish. Of course they were quiet, because whenever I feel childish... What do I do? I sort of sink in. And when you feel childish, what do you do? You you either babble a lot, right, to try to overcome whatever's coming out of your mouth and sounding childish, or you become very, very quiet. They become very, very quiet. Until I walked out of a coffee shop where I was working on this sermon, and I received an email, and I began to read the email, and my first sort of impulse inside of my heart was, doesn't this person know that I'm a pastor and I have this level of experience and I've done this thing and I've got a PhD and I've got, hmm. I thought, well, nice, Lord. I really appreciate that you're driving the point home about status here in a very personal way. Mine, my struggle, my childishness, my acting like a kindergartner in this particular moment as I'm reading this email. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had those sort of inside conversations in your head? Maybe not in in the office space, maybe not in a community group, but in the inside space of your own head, have you ever thought, why don't my peers recognize my greatness? (laughs) Of course you have. You've been right in that argument. And if in that moment, right, someone, Jesus, let's just say Jesus, right? Let's say Jesus sort of shows up and he says hey so what's the conversation you're having inside your head right now like what would you say you'd probably become quiet because you'd feel stupid right I mean that's what you would feel right you'd just sink into yourself a little bit and that's what's happening here the disciples aren't any different from us they're they're a lot like us in fact we We get confused. They were confused. We compete for status. They competed for status. They engage in those wonderful three C's of humanity, comparing, critiquing, condemning so that someone can move up the chain of command in some way. We do that with our neighbors. We do it in our families. We do it at work. We do it in the church. And Jesus finds it quite offensive because it's not how Jesus is. It's not the way he relates to us. It's not the way he interacts with people. And it's not the way his coming kingdom is going to be. It's not what God's world is like. And so Jesus wants to draw that home. And he says, so you got it verse 35, right? Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And you begin to think, okay, I, I can go to the back of the line. I understand that's a very simple instruction. Um, Jesus seems to be driving at that. But then he begins. he, he illustrates it, right? So he takes a child in his arms he says whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. Now we just saw some children on the stage, right? Were they cute? I think they were pretty cute, right? And and so we when we think when we see babies, right? And when we see young children, we um we're drawn to them, right? Because there's they're cute often, sometimes they're not, right, that's, but often they are, right, and so there, there's a cuteness about them, and there's a presumed innocence about them, you know, they're kind of going through the world and whatever, and we get excited about kids, um, all right, there are two things that make people happy uh, if, if they're not happy, children, small children, and puppies, right, that's, that's what we know, and so that's how we relate to children, uh, and so you could very easily think, oh, that's so sweet of Jesus. Jesus is not being sweet here. This is a major, important sort of lecture that Jesus is giving about leadership and greatness in his kingdom. He picks a child not because they're cute and adorable and innocent, he picks a child out of the room because they are the one person in that room who is at the lowest rung of the totem pole. They have no status, zero status. And so Jesus says, pick the one that has no status and welcome that person. And when you welcome that person, you've welcomed me. And not just me, you've welcomed God. That's the way of God's kingdom. That's what it looks like. That's what I've revealed about myself. St. Augustine said, God is he who gives God. And Jesus reveals over and over again that he's come not to grasp at his power, his own status as God, his own greatness. But as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, but he's come what? To humble himself in the not grasping. Taking on the form of a servant and then suffering, dying on a cross before God raises him up. The point is that we're called to love the least of these So this isn't just a great plug for volunteering in children's ministry, but I suppose that she will fit. I'm sure Amy is happy that I said that. But the point is just this, that we would be a community that stops jockeying and networking for greatness for ourselves, and we'd become individuals who leverage whatever status we have for the sake of the status of another. That's the way. Of God's kingdom. And then we have this weird moment, right? John seems to change the conversation. It just feels almost out of sorts in, in a way, right? He tells the story of being out and about outside of the community, right, in the streets, and, and they see someone who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, which, you know, in general, you'd think, hey, that's a good thing. Um, a good thing for that person, anyway, that received that gift, right? And you'd think that's a wonderful thing. But, the, but John says, hey, we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not one of us. So think about that. In other words, he didn't have status. He wasn't tied to Jesus the way we're tied to Jesus. So we tried to stop him from doing that thing. And Jesus says, don't do it because whoever's not against us is for us. And right, a, There's this, this beautiful sort of way in which Jesus is just, this, this question is a, a sort of, blooming and blossoming here and jesus keeps pressing into it so that we would understand that his people as community as church is a place in which our ambition and desire for status is turned on its head and we begin to relate to one another very differently now secondly serious discipleship. So status, now serious discipleship. How do we become people and individuals that begin to live that way, right? That's th- These things are connected, right? It's easy to see these parts of the text as really disconnected because they feel that way to us when we read them. But Jesus is really now pressing into the question of the seriousness with which we must take our discipleship. In other words, in which with which we must take up our cross and begin to follow Jesus in our real lives. And there are a couple things that he begins to point out. The first thing he says, is that you should do no harm to others. And here he's specifically thinking about the little children, the child that he's just blessed, right, the least of these inside of the community. And he's also thinking about the person, the lack of status person outside of the community, right? This person of faith that they saw casting out demons in Jesus' name. He says, do no harm. Verse 40, do not be a cause of stumbling for these little ones or for the faithful outsider doing ministry in Jesus' name. Think about this for a moment. Jesus isn't just in a general way saying, hey, don't be a person that hurts another person. Now, that's, that's of course something Jesus cares about. But right here, what he's concerned about is the way you and I live toward other people that gets in the way of their believing in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. You See, the calling of a human being that is following Jesus is just very simply this, to become a person who becomes a conduit in which people encounter the living God. That you would live life in such a way that in all of your interactions, people would walk away and they think, there was something beautiful about that person that awakens a desire in me to know their Jesus, right? That's what he's talking about. So think about it in the reverse because I think it helps us a little bit. So when you think about your life and how you've made decisions, if you've made decisions, right? If you're making a decision even to show up at church, right, why? If you're outside of Christianity, why did you show up at church, right? you're making these kinds of decisions, what is it about Jesus that's attractive to you? What is it about Jesus that's appealing to you? And who are the people in your life that awaken that attraction, right? That sort of show you Jesus in some sense, right? We all have them. Maybe it's a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend, someone that you were friends with in college, a roommate, and so on and so forth. Just go through the list of people that you know, or churches that you know even, maybe harder to find, but, you know, go through the list of those places, those individuals that become a conduit in which you want to encounter Jesus. It stirs the pot of your own curiosity, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. What would it be like for you to become that kind of person? Live toward other people in that way. But then the second thing Jesus says, and maybe this is actually the way into this kind of hospitality with other people, he essentially says, do no harm to yourself either. Now, that may sound really odd, given that this is the place in which he begins to talk about amputating hands and feet and gouging out eyes, which is, you know, a rather gross analogy to say the least. But think about what he's saying. I think in this text, the main thing Jesus is saying is, look, I I want you to take your discipleship seriously. I want you to take your life with Jesus very seriously. I want you to take following me very seriously and to do that or to drive that home, he takes something precious to us, our bodies. I know that we live in a day in which we're aware that people have body image issues. You know, a lot of us in the room maybe have body image issues, but why do we have body image issues? Not just because we've been sinned against, but because our bodies are important. They're a house. We live in them. We care about them. We feel their aches and pains. And so Jesus takes something that's very dear to us as persons, and he begins to use it in in, in this sort of analogous way to help us think about how important it is that we take Jesus seriously. He plays with our desire to care for this good gift of a body. And he says, essentially, if you think about it in a medical type of analogy, so if you, if you have an eye that is, that is, you know, infectious and damaged, it might be better to take it out than to, have, than to have two eyes, than to die. If you have a hand, one has gangrene on it or something in it, and it's, it might be better to amputate than to keep it, right, than to die. And so on and so forth. That's really what Jesus is doing. He applies to our life with him, following him into his new creation, his kingdom that he's bringing, right? He, he urges us to seek that and to think about this analogy with our bodies as we do that. It's better to lose something that is both desirable and good and even love, like a foot, a hand, an eye, and be aligned with the new creation, and in this case, he says, be thrown into hell, which stirs up other questions for us, of course. But on the one hand, all Jesus is asking of the disciples, and it's important to remember, the audience is the disciples. All he's asking them to do is to know themselves. To know themselves. Do you know your story? Do you know the things, the habits, the practices inside of your life that trip you up in your following of Jesus. That's what he's asking us to think about, essentially. And for the disciples in this particular moment, it's what? It's their ambition for status, right? It's their ambition for greatness that's tripping them up and keeping them from hearing that they need to be people who take up their cross and follow a Savior who takes up his cross. When I lived in uh, New York City, which is now, what, 15 years ago almost, I think, um, we were at some friend's house one evening for dinner. Stacy and I were, and and as we were in their apartment, um, some of the artwork on their walls caught our eyes. I mean, they had this this some beautiful pieces of contemporary artwork. It was just astounding, and we were like mesmerized by it, actually. And, uh, and so Stacy begins to ask questions about one particular painting, and in the course of the conversation, we learned that this particular man had um, his hobby, his avocation, right, was that he was an art collector. So he was, he was a, a banker, a finance guy, a Wall Street dude, right? Uh, and so he could be A collector in many ways, right? That some of us can't be, right? But he was a collector of art, of fine art. And some of them, three of the pieces were on the wall, and one of them really caught our eye, and we're in this conversation. He says, but I sold it. And you're just thinking, oh, wow, given what I've just seen, I'd love to see the others. Why'd you sell it? He said, because I'd become obsessed with it, and it got in the way of my following Jesus. Wow. Now, I know we've got a lot of artists in in our congregation, and you're thinking, I wish he'd just keep buying, (laughs) right? But look, this man knew himself enough to know that his obsession with art, a good thing, a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, was tripping him up in his life with Jesus. I don't understand all the ins and outs of that, but he understood that. In other words, he he endured an amputation so that he could take more steps with Jesus. He still loves art. Do you know yourself in that way? Do you know your story in that way? Are there places in your life that you might say, ah, this is where I need to die to self. This is where I take up my cross and I follow Jesus differently than before. Do you know your story like that? That's what Jesus is pressing into the disciples here. It's better to let go of those things Jesus is saying than to die okay but Jesus uses the hell word well actually he uses the Gehenna word which was a garbage heap outside of uh, outside of Jerusalem but he uses this, this, this word that gets popularized and understood as as hell um, and a host of other sort of odd you know challenging ways of thinking about uh, um, this this reality. And so what do we make of that? And, and let me just say this. There's obviously, I, I'm aware of the time, so I know that we can't sort of work through all of that all fully. But let me just say a couple of things that I think help us, um, and the first is this, is to just come back to who Jesus is talking to. The disciples. That's the audience. He's talking to them about their discipleship. I think it's important to remember that. Uh, I was at Rittenhouse Square during the Christmas holidays, and in fact, I think it was just two days before Christmas. It was the day before Christmas Eve, um, and I'm passing by Rittenhouse Square on the sidewalk over there near uh, Barnes & Noble, the corner of Barnes & Noble. You know the area. And so I'm, I'm walking by, and I see a small little crowd of people gathered around. A couple of individuals, and a bullhorn is being passed among them. And they're shouting, right? And they're shouting a message of hellfire and brimstone, right? And they're preaching, right, essentially to passerbys who they presume to be sinners and they begin to call them by those names and they also sort of identify the particular sins maybe they're prostitutes and whores in their mind or you know and and that is a category that floats over many people who it isn't even their vocation in their minds and so this is just going on right and i am just in that moment like enraged it's christmas do you know what the angels said? Peace on earth, goodwill toward humanity. And I'm just feeling this sort of, I want to take the bullhorn. And I'm embarrassed simultaneously because I'm thinking I'm a minister. (laughs) I'm a a Christian. (laughs) I'm even an evangelical kind of person. And I'm just embarrassed because this message is so incongruent with the way I read the story of Jesus in the Gospels. And what's interesting, when you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, when you talk about like the immoral people of Jesus's day, right, people that were living outside of the accepted norms of Judaism, right, in other words, these would be people that violated in a variety of ways, the Ten Commandments and maybe even other social norms, right? And when you think about how Jesus identified and related to those people that we call sinners, right? What was it? He had meals with them. In other words, Jesus is a conduit in which they encounter God because of his welcome, because of his hospitality, because of his kindness, because of his generosity. When Jesus said hard things it is always to religious professionals like myself it is always to people who are religious like yourselves <laughs> it is always to people who think they're on some trajectory of moral embetterment of moral wokeness those are the people that jesus has hard things to say they get that and here It's the disciples that get those words. It's important not to forget that and not to lose sight of that, of these hard words in the greater context of who Jesus is and what he's doing. So he points out here to his followers, his most intimate followers, the necessity by which they must take his life story seriously for themselves. There's no other way for God's kingdom and new creation to come except through Jesus who takes up his cross and enters hell as one who rescues us from the story of death itself. That's what he's come to do. And Jesus is asking the disciples to align themselves with that story, with the projection of his own life, with the storyline of his own life to get behind him. And embedded in there, there is this hard reality that he reminds the disciples of, and that is just simply this, that the age of brokenness and ruin, God will one day bring to a final ending. Our age, right? Do you feel the ruin? I was preaching earlier at Liberty Center City, and there was a man uh, who participates in their homeless ministry who was murdered last night just across the street from the church. Ruin. We live in a city of violence, of gun violence, of, of harshness. We live in a city that, um, in which poverty is rampant. We live in a city of tremendous inequality. We live in a city of, of racial uh, divide and, ang- and sort of angst. I mean, we just keep going down the list of all of the ways in which the injustices of our world are writ large. And what Jesus essentially is reminding them is just very simply that in the day of God's judgment, that world ends.
0: Now, I don't know
2: how God will reconcile all things under Christ at the end of time, but I know he promises to do such. And he promises to bring this injustice of our world and the evil to an end. And so in light of that reality, Jesus simply urges the disciples to be very serious about their life with God to understand that the God that Jesus is revealing, this God of goodness and love and hospitality and trustworthiness can handle our confusion so that we become individuals that take next steps with Jesus. And then he concludes here by calling us to, to sort of stay salty, right? Stay salty. And in the context, that has to mean just this that we a follow Jesus and we do so by taking up our cross and dying to selves right and so therefore not being individuals in this context of elevating or consumed with our own status elevating our status over the little ones but instead we become those who are humble and take the lower status alongside of the little ones so we become a community that is at peace with one another rather than arguing about who is the greatest And the only way for you and I to come into that reality, that experience, is as we back up into Jesus' teaching about children, as we look forward to what he's going to say in the next chapter about becoming childlike as we come to him is just this. That Jesus sees people that have no status. And the only way to be seen, the only way to come into view is to take up that space yourself and to live with humility in the world before a God who has shown up to see you. And when we do that, we become a community of peace. And when we do that, we become a community, we become individuals whose lives are a conduit of the same peace for other people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us as we think about these challenging, challenging words and that we wouldn't get tripped up by them, but rather we would see the beauty of our Savior and we would want to be those who follow and listen and align ourselves with the Prince of Peace. Would you meet us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.